to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you the recording of a panel session from the 2016 Australasian Aid Conference on the topic of putting political thinking into development practice. Sorry to the people who are sitting on the floor. Um, Welcome. This is uh, really quite impressive. Um, I just need to make a notification that this is going to be taped, so uh, just be aware that there's a taping machine down here. Uh, Right, I'm Sandra Krauser, I'm with DFAT in the governance governance section, Um, so I'm delighted to have been asked to chair this panel. I think it's going to be the most interesting panel in the entire (laughs) conference. So there's been a number of development donors, practitioners and researchers who've been delving into a better understanding of how change happens, why it happens or why it doesn't happen, and the politics of development. There's a growing recognition that technical solutions to development challenges are not enough to sustain reforms. It also has to be politically possible. We all know that. So politically smart development is adaptive to country realities, It's iteratively learning, and it's adjusting course and calibrating, and it needs to be positioned to take advantage of critical opportunities as they arise. So this session is going to be about what is politically possible and politically smart development. We have four speakers who it's fantastic to be able to work with. Lisa Denny, over here, she'll be speaking first. She's an independent consultant research associate. She's also a research fellow with the politics and governance area in the Overseas Development Institute. She conducts research on security, justice, conflict, gender, governance, and development in fragile and low-income countries. We work with her on political economy analysis, particularly in how DFAT is broadening up political economy analysis to address gender concerns and gender power dynamics. Um, And... So, yeah, she's doing amazing work. She'll be the first presenter. The second presenter is David Hudson, over here, with the beard. Nice beard, by the way. (laughs) It's kind of new. (laughs) He's currently a a visiting research fellow at the Institute for Human Security and Social Change at La Trobe University. He's a deputy director of the Developmental Leadership Program and is usually based in the University College London. He's here for four months, I think, with you, Chris. Yeah, so welcome to Australia. Okay. Um, David's contributing, is continue, continuing some research that was begun with the late Adrian Leftwich to develop a political analysis uh, framework. He's equally excited by invisible power as he is with modelling survey data, which is great, thanks. (laughs) And today he'll speak about this political analysis framework that can be used on an everyday basis. It's jargon-free and accessible. So impressive. Uh, Tom Parks is our man in Bangkok. I wanted to say that. (laughs) So he is uh, DFAT's Governance and Fragility Advisor and he works across the Southeast Asia programs. Prior to this, he was the regional director for conflict and governance based in Thailand. And in that role, he shaped strategic and intellectual direction for the foundation programs and research in a wide number of areas. Do I have to? Oh, yeah. Okay, so he'll be speaking today about his experience in working with large traditional development programs and how to make them a little more politically savvy. And then finally, we'll have Chris Roche in the room, whom I'm assuming most of you will know. Hmm. Just here. 
Um, he's got over 25 years' experience working for international NGOs. Uh, he's uh, joined La Trobe in 2012. He's the convener of the Masters of International Development. Um, he's the director of the Institute for Human Security and Social Change. He's a senior researcher with the Developmental Leadership Program. He's particularly interested in understanding how social change happens, who's involved, and how the effectiveness of attempts to promote change is assessed. So in, he's deeply, deeply interested in this assessment part because this is one of the major challenges of how do we create and use flexible monitoring and evaluation systems that can tell the messy stories of development change? Oh, and the political stories of development change. So what we've agreed with the presenters is they'll speak uh, for 15 minutes each, back-to-back -back sessions, and then we'll hold the questions until after that. We anticipate there'll be about 30 minutes, 25 minutes to 30 minutes for questions. So if you can hold your questions until then, that will be fantastic. So because we have... Um, a shortage of seats. Um, you might have to, if you want to stand, that's great, otherwise you'll have to bring your chair. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Please welcome Lisa Jenny. Thanks, everyone. It's so nice to see so many of you here, and especially for everyone sitting down on the ground, please do feel free to get up and move around if you need to stretch at any point. That's absolutely fine. Um, so the presentation I'm going to give today is sort of based around a paper that I'm working on at the moment uh, that's about using political economy analysis in the design stage of programming. So our panel as a whole is very much of the approach that PEA isn't something that you just do in design and then forget about. It, it's definitely something that's meant to continue throughout the whole program cycle. But I'm going to focus specifically um, on the design stage in, in this presentation. And the paper itself is a sort of guidance how-to note for practitioners. So I'm going to try not to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of all the steps but just to talk you through sort of the main components and the sort of thinking or rationale that's, that's uh, gone into the paper. So there's been a push um, in the last 15 years or so in development programming for programs to be informed by a deep analysis of the political economy of context. Um, and this is considered sort of crucial to move beyond overly technical approaches to aid, um, whereby the idea was that you just needed some sort of sectoral expertise imported to fill a capacity gap and then a, a service would, would work better. So we know that development problems aren't purely technical, but they're also political. Um, so capacity deficits aren't, aren't just the result of a technical shortage of skills or resources, but are also the result of particular configurations of interests uh, and, and incentives. So these incentives and interests can be harder to shift and require an understanding of how the status quo is actually anchored in existing power relations um, and how potential change threatens to change those power relations. So there's been a lot of investment in PEA on the back of this. Um, a lot of standalone research has been conducted, a lot of training, um, political economy analysis has been integrated into some programs. But PEA has also been called the dismal science of constraints. There's a sort of a sense that it focuses overwhelmingly on understanding the obstacles to reform, the challenges that are faced, but not very much in the way of charting a course um, towards reform. So this has then prompted more thinking about the place of political economy analysis, who conducts it, when it happens in the program cycle, to what end, uh, and so on. And these are sort of some of the questions that I've been thinking about. So the main questions I'm interested in is why do we have so much PEA going on that seemingly isn't connected with or informing the programs? And specifically in relation to the, the sectors that I work in most, conflict, uh, security and justice, why do programs continue to look the same if they're all supposedly tailored to context? 
Um, and this came in particular off the back of a review I did for the Independent Commission for Aid Impact in the UK a couple of years ago that looked at their security and justice portfolio uh, internationally. And what we found was that, you know, despite very different contexts, you had the same sort of activities cropping up again and again. So you had community policing programs, you had paralegals, you had women's desks and police stations, and you had that in rural Kenya as well as in, you know, Dhaka, Bangladesh. And when we asked the, the sort of programmers, you know, how this, how this fits, they sort of said that, that they then tailor those standard activities to the context. But what's striking about that is that it suggests that context gets factored in second, uh, that you start with the standard menu of our activities and then you decide how they're tailored to context rather than from developing our activities from the basis of, um, of context alone. So I'm interested in how PEA can be undertaken in a way that enables it to inform the selection of program activities and not merely to influence how those predetermined activities are then sort of deployed in a, in a given context. So with that in mind and building on um, a lot of political economy analysis work that uh, colleagues of mine at the Overseas Development Institute have been doing for a number of years, uh, colleagues and I developed a sort of training model for uh, implementers of security and justice programs in particular to try and get to this starting from context um, um, basis. And this is what forms um, the basis of this presentation. So there's five caveats and seven steps is what I've sort of tried to boil it down to. Um, so these are the, the five caveats. So first of all, to genuinely inform decisions about activities, PEA should begin early in the program cycle. Um, and this is so that you know, context can be the thing that is genuinely driving your program design and your selection of activities. So I've got a caveat to the caveat here that this isn't to suggest that it ends at the beginning of the program cycle, which others will talk about, but this is where it needs to start. Um, second is that political economy analysis is really time-consuming and difficult. It requires background research, field research, consulting widely with stakeholders, reading, discussing with your teams. This isn't an activity that can be confined to a week in your design stage, which is often what I've been asked to you know, come into programs and help do. They say, we want to do the PEA. If you can come in, do it in a week, and then we can use that to inform the program. That's not how it works. And partly for that reason, I don't think PEA is something that can be easily outsourced to contractors. Um, it's something that needs to involve the program staff who will be implementing uh, and managing the program on a day-to-day -day basis so that it doesn't just become a sort of siloed activity off on its own. Um, this is meant to be connected to and informing everyday decisions. Uh, fourth, while political economy analysis has been about rebalancing the, the sort of over, uh, overwhelming focus on technical skills with political skills, that's not to say that tech, uh, sectoral expertise isn't important. I think sometimes we've sort of moved almost too far in that direction. And actually having people who are familiar with how a sector works, the protocols, language, um, sort of common constraints that you face in particular sectors, I think is still uh, very important. And then finally, I think we need to recognise the limits of PEA. I think some of the, um, the sort of sense in which it hasn't delivered on everything we wanted it to uh, has more to do with the unrealistic expectations that we imposed on it rather than um, with, with what it's produced. So political economy analysis isn't you know, a machine that you insert information into and it spits out answers. You know, that's not how it works. It's an ongoing process of questioning and iteration, um, and it's only ever going to be as good as the information you have available, which is always going to be incomplete and, and changing over time. So they're the caveats. So then we'll move on to the steps. So first of all, start by thinking about the problems faced in the context you're working in. And the focus on problems isn't meant to be disempowering, you know, as if developing countries are full of problems and donors are, are bringing solutions. 
Rather, it's intended to ensure that, that your analysis is guided by the problem in a given context and not by your predetermined solutions that donors are used to delivering you know, in a number of different places. So the idea is that this is meant to help you get to a more granular level of, an, of analysis that is then sort of operationally useful um, for, for programmers. But of course, whose problems we focus on is deeply political. So, you know, problems of injustice for the poor might well be in the interests of the political elite. So deciding whose problems you're going to prioritise uh, is going to require, you know, quite a lot of negotiation. Uh, it's not always straightforward and you're probably going to need to identify overlapping interests um, or striking a balance between different groups of, um, of uh, beneficiaries to, in terms of whose problems you, you prioritise. There's also usually multiple component problems uh, involved. And so for the security and justice sectors in particular, we've developed what we call security and justice chains to sort of tease these out. Uh, and I think these can probably be applied to other sectors. I do a bit of work in the health sector as well. And I think anything where you have a delivery chain, um, I'll show you the chains in a moment, I think it can probably work for. So these are sort of meant to capture the, the drivers or the causes um, of a particular problem, in, in my case of insecurity or injustice, as well as then um, the response mechanisms. So this is what they look like. They're not really quite as, um, quite as scary as they look as, as a whole. So at the top, you basically have some of the overarching structural features that shape the problem. So the legislative policy framework, formal and informal norms. And then programs are, are meant to draw out the justice chains themselves so that they actually look like whatever the, the context you're, you're working in. This is just an example I've done. So I've sketched out, for instance, the various drivers of violence. Then you have an instance of violence itself, and then you have the various reporting chains that a, that a survivor might use. So they might go to the formal justice system, they might go to a customary system, they might go to a hospital and not use the, the justice system at all, or they might not report. So each chain is then broken down into its component stages as well, which again allows for sort of more granular analysis. So you'll encounter problems at each of these stages. Again, these aren't predetermined categories, these are categories that are useful in your analysis. So the example I've used, you know, you've got the moment where somebody reports um, an instance of violence. You've then got the investigation of that violence. You've then got, you know, a, a court process and so on. And at each of those, you're going to encounter a number of different problems. So this, again, is sort of starting to help us get to uh, the various component problems um, within a wider problem that you're dealing with. So then you move on to unpack the political economy at each stage of those chains. Sorry, this is simply to highlight that... Uh, the prevention and response aspects, which in security and justice, at least, um, the prevention side is often overlooked. And we assume that we're working on preventing violence, but actually we tend to work much more on responding to violence. Okay, so in terms of unpacking each stage of the chain, I'm not going to go into this in detail, um, but basically there's three uh, useful analytical categories that are often common to most um, political economy analysis frameworks. So structure, agency, and then the sort of dynamic interaction between them. Structure, the sort of resilient features that are deeply embedded um, in a context. They refer to formal and informal institutions, you know, what's sometimes called the rules of the game. So this might be laws, policies, um, formal protocols. Your informal norms um, are then the sort of social norms that are a bit more hidden, um, where, where power often resides and is often what's really driving um, what's going on. Agencies uh, refers to the actors involved in each stage of, their, of the chain and their sort of interests and incentives around a particular problem. And then what's missing off the bottom is the dynamic interaction between the two. Um, and this is really about recognising that structure and agency aren't things that really can be considered separately. They're interactive um, uh, dynamics. Um, and in this process, I think it's important to think about how change happens differently in different contexts. So change can happen uh, in response to quite instant moments, like an election or a natural disaster in which everybody's interests are sort of being reconfigured and people are repositioning. 
or change can also be the very slow, drawn-out interaction of structure and agents over time. And the, the best example of this is probably, you know, improvements in women's rights, where you have people who are slowly chipping away at structures of patriarchy. There's not a sort of single moment that, that captures that change. Both of these are change processes that I think um, development programs have to be um, astute to. So just an example of what this looks like. Um, so I've just chosen an example of violence against women. You can map out some of the drivers I've suggested here. You know, alcoholism might be one of the drivers. And then within that, you think about the structures, the actors, and the, the interaction between those things that, that sort of sustain the problem that you're, that you're looking at. Um, and we can come back to this uh, in questions if, if we want to. So then comes the sort of the hard and the most important part. After completing this analysis, the team need to consider how change might realistically happen in a given context, given all the contextual features that, that you've identified. And this is crucial to developing programs that are realistic about the nature of change sought and are therefore more likely to achieve results. And it's also important because it recognises that change doesn't ultimately come from donor programs, but it comes endogenously from the societies in which we're working and, and donor programs will only ever play a, a small part in, in that process. So there's no easy answers here. Um, if there were, obviously, development would be a much easier field to work in. Um, and again, this is something that, that you're not going to achieve in an afternoon session. You know, your program team isn't going to sit around and decide, well, we, we can see how change is going to happen in relation to reducing violence against women. You know, this is, again, something that is an ongoing iterative process, certainly throughout your entire design stage, and then inevitably into your implementation stage where you're going to continue to learn um, and have to adapt your program. Um, so a caution that, yes, this is not something you can, you can do quickly or easily. Um, I also think this is the step that a lot of uh, programming misses. Um, a lot of political economy analysis exercises I've been involved in, people move straight from the analysis of the situation to what the donor is going to do about it. And I think that then inflates, you know, what we're expecting our development programs to do and, and misunderstands, you know, how change happens. So only really then at the end do we actually consider what a development program is, is going to do. Um, Putting this consideration last, again, is key to ensuring that the decisions that we're making about activities is genuinely driven by the context and not by, by other factors. Um, teasing out how the program then intends to support um, the change process that you've identified, the local change process, becomes your theory of change because you're articulating the ways in which program activities will contribute to the wider change process um, identified. Coming up with uh, innovative program entry points isn't easy. We all tend to fall back on things that we're familiar with, things that we've worked on before. Um, so we've sort of come up with a pile of questions that can be useful prompts for thinking about new actors to engage with, new ways of looking at problems um, to try and sort of uh, encourage this kind of thinking. So then that sort of brings us to the, the end of the PEA part. Um, and so conducting a sort of political economy analysis can be really useful for making sure that you've got a program that is, that is starting from the context. But this is really just the first step. Um, so I would say there are at least three follow-up steps that, that are needed to make this really count. So the first is looking at the evidence base. And I think there's a lot of talk about evidence-based programming and whatnot. But what tends to happen when people say that is that they look for a program that worked in India and they say, great, we're going to do that in Kenya. Um, but actually, there's no translation of evidence there. There's nobody saying, OK, why did this program work in, Ken in uh, India? Do the reasons that that program worked in India apply to the program we're thinking of running in Kenya? So there's a process of translating the evidence, which is connected very much to your context analysis, um, rather than just sort of picking up ideas that have worked in one context and assuming they're going to work somewhere else. The second is local buy-in. So 
you know, obviously in the reality of programming, we know that actually we can't just necessarily do what we think is best, that actually there are also local counterparts. Um, there are, you know, government to government relationships that have to be maintained. And so it is often the case that, for instance, your inspector general of police wants a lot of vehicles and a lot of motorbikes. And you know that that's not particularly transformative, but it's a necessary uh, part of programming in order to do all the other stuff. So I think that's fine. I think that's the world we live in and we have to be realistic about that. But I think that staff need to be aware that that's why you're making that decision. And so that when your evaluators come in and say, oh, why did you buy 50 motorbikes? Don't try and explain that it's transformational. Just accept that actually you know that there are some parts of your program that are just politically necessary in order to be able to do the other stuff that you think is transformational. Um, and then the final one is embedding PEA in the, the longer uh, running program. And I'm not going to talk about this because other colleagues are going to. But again, you know, this is not where political economy analysis ends. This is just where it begins. And then there is a process of embedding that in ongoing reflection, thinking and learning throughout the program so that you're taking, you know, advantage of your increasing knowledge um, and of, thanks, I'll stop really quickly, um, and of, of the changing dynamics. So that's a very quick fly-through of how we might revive PEA so that it genuinely informs decisions about program design rather than just sort of being a half-hearted add-on um, that pays lip service to context but doesn't really begin with it. And there's that. Okay, thank you, Sandra, um, both for the introduction, but especially for the air. Um, so uh, this is a paper that's just gone on the DLP website um, called Everyday Political Analysis. Um, it's uh, co-authored with uh, Heather Marquette, who may be somewhere. There she is, in the corner. Um, so her name is here. Um, and also Sam Waldock, who is a governance advisor uh, who's based in Rwanda and works for Difford. And there's a bit of a background story on, on, on how this came about, uh, which hopefully I'm going to try and go through a little bit today. So here's where we started, and this was especially conversations between Heather and myself, that um, all of the work that's kind of been informing political economy analysis has been either very high-level academic work, and um, I would plead guilty to uh, some of this as well, um, and then people working within bilaterals, uh, within multilaterals, uh, such as DFID, DFAT, UNDP, World Bank, um, and the likes of ODI, started turning this into much more applied analysis and frameworks that could actually do the PEA stuff that we're all so familiar with. But that was generally done by researchers, um, consultants, etc., external actors. And then recently, most recently, there's a, um, a volume that was put together uh, by the OECD DAC, um, which was unusually interesting um, in <laughs> the way that it was written and organised, in that... Um, 
Alan Waits, Graham Teskey and some others decided to write it around a fictional governance advisor called Lucy. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, Lucy being the first woman and the idea was what, what's the advice that we give her as a young governance advisor going out to her first posting and Heather and I con contributed a chapter in this and in our chapter we identified a number of gaps and one of the gaps that we identified was this gap between the PEA uh, reports, the analysis and actually what was done every day by the uh, advisors and programmers in country and that's that how could we close this gap? And the answer we kept getting from the people we spoke to was, well, it's, it goes out of date very quickly. It's not always obvious uh, how I apply this. And actually, it's just too complicated. It's too big. And so the idea that we came up with is to do something called everyday political analysis, something that anyone could do, and perhaps most importantly, that people who aren't governance experts could do as well. And there was, there was definitely a sense of demand for this. Meanwhile, uh, Sam Waldock, who I'd never met, dropped me an email, got in touch, said, loved your 100-page paper with Adrian Lefwich. I doubt anyone else has read it. Um, uh, and you should write something much shorter, trying to make the same argument. And, I, I, yeah, I didn't need persuading. And so Heather, me, and Sam sat down, and that's, that's where this has come from, and that's the, the genesis of it. Um, and so it's been informed by theory but also through Sam, his own work, and uh, through um, some uh, interviews he did, he found out what people tended to do anyway. So what do people do? What is uh, good practice? What do experienced governance advisors or other sector uh, specialists do to try and read the political landscape on a day-to-day -day basis? What sort of questions do they ask? And then we tried to put them together, uh, both the theoretical stuff that we already knew and the, uh, the more... Um, um, kind of lived uh, expertise that people gain from working in uh, these contexts for, for many years. So that kind of reframes, I think, just what I was saying, that um, another key reason for this is that I think it's now increasingly accepted, um, especially by people in this room, I'm guessing, that actually we have very poor idea of what's going to work in advance. And so to set up uh, a log frame, being held to it, without being able to iterate it, change it as we go along, is going to be disastrous. But to do that, we can't rely on external experts, consultants to come in and do the PEA. So it's something that people need to do every day. Um, people may need to make quick decisions, and not about big stuff necessarily, but just sense-checking the whole time. So why did the minister announce this? Why has there been a reshuffle? What is the, uh, the Women's Coalition doing uh, going to uh, this particular meeting? Those sort of more frequent concerns are, are what we're interested in. And there is, as we said, definitely a demand for this. It's, there's, there's been um, uh, questions asked of um, uh, practitioners and programme people about what, what we can do. And then finally, the bit that's hanging off the bottom here is basically, there's, and this is what Sandra said, there's an attempt to put no jargon in there. We got, we got rid of everything that's um, you know, problem-driven, uh, iterative adaptation, open access orders. Even my beloved agency, I don't think, made it in there. So uh, we've attempted to get rid of all that to, to make it um, accessible to uh, anyone. What it is not, then. Um, uh, my Greek famously said this is not a pipe. Um, 
Why is it not a pipe? It's a picture of a pipe, that's why. So it looks like a pipe, but you'd be wrong to say that it's a pipe. Okay, a bit convoluted. <laughs> In the same way, this is not a tool. Um, it might look like a tool, um, but it is definitely not meant to be. We're really keen that, that this is looked at as a process, there is a set of questions in there, and people can ask themselves those questions, but it's a, not a tool, or as Lisa said, it's not a machine, you put something in, it spits out an answer. Um, so, it's a framework or a process. It won't give you an answer, um, Lisa's already said that. Um, this is probably important, it's not new, uh, and it's not, we're not pretending it is either, and it's not rocket science. We're trying to bring together the best um, existing expertise from the field, but also existing theoretical work, uh, but put it together into uh, a single package, uh, a useful checklist. And then the final one on the bottom is really important as well. This is not, not meant to replace professional ex-ante political economy analysis. That still has to be done up front, whether it's to inform design or, or whatever else. Or if you come to a particularly tricky juncture, that still may be necessary. But this, this is meant to be a complement um, that's being done in-house, and so the, the country team uh, can own the analysis themselves. Um, okay. How to do political analysis. The, the normal refrain here is, and, and Lisa used this turn of phrase as well, we try and understand the rules of the game. This is absolutely right, that when we're thinking about politics as people who are working in a, there's been a long pushback on just reducing it to stakeholder analysis or perhaps what diplomats say they do. Oh, you've got to get to know the key people and then you've got it all figured out. We need to understand the context, the structure and the institutions. So we agree with this, but we actually think that's a really flawed place to start because when you talk to someone without a governance background, political science background and try and talk about the rules of the game, it's like, oh, I don't really get that. Um, and secondly, it also misses this crucial point that there are the rules of the game, and then to use Adrian Lefwich's term, there are games within the rules that people play. And so trying to understand that as well is key. So what that means is that we start from an individual. Okay? Um, this, this individual did have a name. He used to be called Mr. Sticky. Um, there's a number of reasons we don't... Well. <laughs> we don't talk about Mr. Sticky anymore. But, um, uh, yeah. Right, uh, so here's where we start. This is a person of interest. So it could be a minister, um, it could be the leader of a coalition, it could be anyone. It doesn't have to be someone quote-unquote important, but they're influential in some way that interests us. And um, that's where we start. But immediately what the... the um, framework, the approach is asking you to do is think about that person uh, in context, that no person is an island, and to think about their place within this uh, political ecosystem. We also would say, yes, people act within their own interests, and they try and uh, maximise their utility or their happiness, and people act within what they believe to be rational. But they do this through an internal process, an internal process of, uh, of a conversation, trying to work out what their interests are or how they might want to achieve their interests. It's not some automatic, rational um, economic actor that, that's too often assumed. And this also means, importantly, that the way that people... Um, the way that the interaction happens between the incentives that people face, the context, and also their behaviour, is a very unpredictable one. 
that people uh, face lots of overlapping incentives. They often point in different directions, and they have to choose which one to go with, whether that's a professional one, whether that's to do with uh, family, friends, etc. So they need to have this internal conversation, and people don't always make the same decision. So we, we actually have to make that central um, to, to the analysis. So that's the kind of the, the theory behind it. This is the paper. I said it's up on the uh, it's up on the website. There are two steps to it, and you can just do step one, or you could do step two. The first one is to to try and understand what makes people tick. Uh, the second one is okay. We understand what makes them tick. Um, how is it that they might go about creating the political space to achieve the reform or change um, that they they are trying to do trying to do so? And just to give you a flavour of those uh, that first step. We have five questions for each, and under each question, there's a series of other kind of prompts to get people thinking. And again, the language is meant to be very kind of everyday and uh, uh, normal here. So is it clear what the uh, individual wants? Um, is it to do with income, rents, power? Is it part of a deal? Um, are there, is it one thing they're after or multiple things? Do they point in the same direction or are they in tension? Um, are they reformists? Are they trying to block reforms? And do they have short-term interests and long-term interests? So trying to unpack some of the complexity there. Um, what about their beliefs? Does this give us any uh, indication of what we should expect? Um, is it in is their behaviour or their decisions in line with previous uh, beliefs or past behaviour? And are, they, are the beliefs that they're professing, are they sincere or are they convenient rhetoric that's worth trying to unpack too. Third, what about the constraints? So um, the other constraints, and this is really important here to think about the formal constraints they face, but also the informal constraints they face, whether that's kin or other social networks. And also, are these sincere constraints, or are they using those constraints strategically uh, for political ends, uh, as people often do? Uh, fourth is, kind of goes back to that toy network map, um, what about the key influences on them from other people, other organisations? Um, who are they reporting to? Um, and what is the nature of that influence? Is it maybe funding, money, financing, or is it authority? Is that authority uh, expertise, perhaps, or is it perhaps more traditional, religious? Uh, that, and that's the nature of the relationship. And crucially here, especially for those that work in... Uh, external uh, organisations are external to the environment. What about the role of the donor or the NGO as well? Where where do they sit within the uh, within the ecosystem? What role and how distorting are they are are they of incentives and rules etc. And then the final one that's off the bottom there is around norms. Um, so how do norms play into this? Customs. Um, for this particular person, are they gendered? Are they, uh, is, is there an ethnic dimension to them? Um, are they norms that legitimate certain courses of behaviour? And are they in line with these previous uh, or these other four things? Or do they proscribe them? Do they push back against uh, their, their uh, objectives and their, their interests? And are there different norms? Do they, are there, so we often talk about going with the grain. Well, it's very rare that there's a single grain and there's alternative norms, there's alternative grains that we can go with. Uh, and so to, to try and open up that, uh, that sort of thinking. So 
that's just the flavour. As I said, the paper, it's actually five pages, so um, well done us. Um, and it's, it's been, we've presented in various forums, we've discussed with uh, colleagues, and it's changed actually quite a lot. Wow, that font's really small. Um, it's changed a lot, but it's still now going to the stage where people, and we've got some volunteers from uh, some donor agencies, to use it and to give us feedback on what works, what doesn't work, what's missing, uh, what other support or help they might need. For example, some worked examples um, or a template. And um, perhaps the, the key problems that people face, the one we anticipate is the challenge of collecting information and how to synthesize that information. Because kind of the unwritten thing here is that we can actually get and understand uh, the answers to these questions. We can get the data, the data that allow us to answer these questions. And how confident can we be in that? Trying to get into people's heads is a really tricky thing to do. So um, if uh, people have comments on questions they think we've missed, um, uh, other uh, pieces of support, uh, materials, etc., that would be useful. We'd love uh, to hear from you. And indeed, if there's any other volunteers, please also get in touch. Um, but that's, that's a, by way of introducing this. As I said, it's on the DLP website. So thank you. Okay, great. If anybody needs to leave, please, uh, I understand. Uh, it's really impressive that you're willing to sit here like this. So thank you very much. So as Sandra said, my name is Tom Parks. I'm DFAT's Regional uh, Governance and Fragility Specialist based in Bangkok, but I, I'm actually connected to the Governance and Fragility Branch here in the Development Policy uh, Division in, in Canberra. Um, this presentation today is, is based on a paper that I'm working on um, which is trying to draw out some of our experiences across Southeast Asia in trying to shape our programs within DFAT to be more politically smart, more flexible, and responsive to the environment. Um, I mean, I would argue from my personal experience that this is a very exciting time to work in development. After many years of trying to make the case that politics mattered in development and that it was often the biggest constraint, but sometimes the biggest accelerator of development, finally it's starting to make its way into mainstream discourse and thinking. Um, this morning we heard the Secretary mention this, for example. So this is all very, very exciting. Um, but the topic we're going to talk about today is, in my view, the most difficult topic when it comes to thinking about how we can make this shift. Um, so let me proceed. There's been a lot of talk recently about thinking and working politically. And let me explain precisely what we're trying to say here. First, when we talk about thinking in politically, this is about trying to be more informed about the machinations of power at play in the development process, interests, power, and how these shape institutions, for example, and how these shape development outcomes, right? What this means specifically could be things like understanding the political pressures and personal interests of your, that should be government counterparts, sorry, 
This, a lot of this is what David was just talking about. Try to understand how people tick, why they behave the way they do, etc. Right? Um, the next part is the tough part, the working politically side. Right. So what this means is, in, in how we're defining it at DFAT, is using our analysis and understanding of power and politics to increase the impact of our programs throughout the program cycle, not merely in the design phase. So this can take many, many different flavors, and I'm going to try to draw out some of this today. This could be, for example, shifting your project priorities to focus on areas that are more politically feasible. This could be focusing on project engagement and support on actors who will have the influence to make the change that we're trying to achieve. Um, so there's a lot of different possibilities with this. What we're not talking about is, is in any way shaping the local politics. It's, it's basically aligning with various political dynamics in the local context in order to achieve development impact. Now, the challenge for us, though, is a lot of people are saying that this could be just a passing fad. So there's a great book written a few years ago by Tom Carruthers and Diane de Germont, which basically made the argument saying that this whole focus on politics is actually an almost revolution. So we're almost there. We're, we're almost at the point of, of, of steering the big ship. Uh, but we're, we're not quite there, and in fact, it actually could uh, take many, many uh, more years. So the idea here is that the broader transformation of the aid industry actually remains a distant prospect. Um, that in many ways, practitioners that focus on political methods, that's fine, but it often provides insights without answers about what to do on Monday morning. Um, and as a result... We have to understand the structural problems and the, the reasons why this is not so easy. And a lot of this means that basically to work this way, it cuts directly against the grain of many central imperatives and habits in mainstream aid organizations, right? So there's a reason this isn't easy, okay? But I would say we should be optimistic. So of course you can work on big aid programs and be nimble. There's, it's just more a matter of, science, of art and trying to sort of Find your way through it. One quick uh, clarification, too. Um, a lot of the thinking initially about how aid programs can work more politically focused on very small programs, on NGO-led programs, highly nimble programs um, like the uh, Asia Foundation's program, Coalitions for Change, it was mentioned this morning. Um, what we tried to do in broadening this discourse is to say, yes, a lot of the good work that NGOs and smaller projects can do is important. And what we do is we, we, we call these more revolutionary approaches, because in many ways, these are very major shifts away from uh, traditional aid approaches. In many cases, very, very loose or no log frame at all, very responsive, etc. Um, to what we're calling evolutionary approaches, which is where really the vast majority of mainstream aid is. Mainstream aid is usually large bilateral programs. When I say large, $10 million or more, usually has many, many moving pieces, direct bilateral relationship with government. They necessarily need to have more structure, and they need to be planned out to, more, to a larger extent. So what we're talking about here, you can't really see it, it's down here, is promoting politics as routine, encouraging and supporting politically informed decisions and approaches across all aid programs, not just the really small and nimble ones. So I would argue that in many ways we're turning the corner now. We've made a lot of progress over the last couple of years in thinking about politics and how it affects our programs, and now we're starting to move into the thinking working politically space. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on two programs, 
And let me start by saying some of the people who were involved in those programs are here in the room. So I may actually defer some of the answers to uh, my colleague Jeff King in the back, for example, uh, with the, with the, uh, and others uh, on, the, on the Philippines project. What we, what we try to do is start with two large rural development projects within DFAT. Um, and the question was, how can aid programs successfully navigate local political factors to reduce risk and increase impact? A key thing to note is that these two projects, they're listed right there, the Cambodia Agricultural Value Chain Project, CAVAC, and the Provincial Roads Management Facility in the Philippines. These two projects actually look very traditional on paper. If you look at them, there's, there's a lot of technical assistance. They're building roads or building irrigation schemes. They look very traditional, right? But what's interesting is when you actually look and explore and kind of see actually how they manage political problems, there's a lot of great stories that come out of these two projects and many more. This is just, this is, I think, just sort of the tip of the iceberg. Um, just to give you a sense here, the, well, the, the, sc the scale is right there. One, CAVEX is about $50 million, six-year program, and uh, PRMF is $100 million. I think another key point to note is that both of these projects – uh, and Jeff may disagree with me on this, but both of these projects actually, they, they started being managed in a very traditional way without paying attention to politics. They both had huge difficulties, and they went into a, a major redesign or reshape, and then they went into a second phase that was much, much more politically smart in the way the program was managed, often with completely different people involved. And there was... Significant differences. So in both of these projects, we have a before and after sort of test case. Okay. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to go into each one, but what I'm going to do is sort of try to draw some of the commonalities that we saw on the projects about how they were trying to work differently. Um, and there's a few things right here, and then I'll go into one or two of them in more depth. Political skills within the project team was a core element of this. So the PRMF team, for example brought in as a, new, as a new project, they had co-team leaders for the project. One of them had no background in this technical area whatsoever, but this person was uh, formerly on the campaign of the president uh, for the Philippines, had all kinds of political networks. And that person brought in a degree of credibility within the political networks in the country, as well as strong connections with government and Malacanang, which is the, the president's office. And that made a huge difference in the way the program was able to work towards reforming a key uh, area of, of uh, policy, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, on the, on the, uh, the Cambodian story is also interesting, but had a very different strategy. In the Cambodia case, it was a situation where um, they had to basically find ways to work with provincial governments and very powerful provincial elites. In the Cambodia case, well, let me just say, if you can imagine... Building irrigation schemes in, in different parts of rural Cambodia um, runs into all kinds of politics about where you select where you're going to do your irrigation project, right? And so they knew that there was going to be all kinds of politics, different elites trying to influence them to do the irrigation scheme on their land or in their community, etc. So they had to find a way to really carefully navigate that. So they hired a number of very well-connected Cambodians who knew the provincial governors, who knew people at that local level, and they were able to navigate those very tricky political waters. These were very explicit decisions that they knew that they were going to have trouble with these kinds of politics. They knew they wanted to accomplish something that was going to require some degree of bringing coalitions together, and so they brought people in who could do the job. 
Um, and these people often didn't have any technical experience that was relevant for the project. So that is quite a distinct uh, sort of uh, approach. Um, I'm going to talk a minute about broadening allies. The concept in the, in the revolutionary, the, the more aid, the small aid programs that are doing this work, a big theme there is coalition uh, development, right? So coalitions for change is a good example. I would argue a lot of this can happen in large programs too, but often the coalitions might look a bit different. Um, and I'll show you an example of that in a minute. Um, let me actually move on. I'm going to come back to this if we need to. Okay. Here's an example of, of sort of coalition building, big project style, right? Um, the initial phase of the PRMF, the Provincial Roads uh, ma uh, Management Facility, um, was basically working. It was so DFATS and the managing contractor, they had, yeah, thanks. They had a direct relationship with the Department of Interior and local government. Um, the decisions were coming explicitly from DFAT down the line to the managing contractor, who was basically doing, you know, was basically executing those, but not, not really influencing the decisions. Technical assistance was going to the provincial governments down here. Um, and project site selection was being done by technical consultants uh, who basically were only consulting with local government, but for the most part were making decisions purely on technical basis on where the, which roads would be maintained and worked on. Right? The money was flowing from DFAT through the Department of Interior and local government and down straight to the public works, um, the road projects at the, at the local level. Now, when this was redesigned, there's a couple of things that they changed. First, they put in a facility management group, which was, these were a, a sort of a, a project management team that was in between DFAT and the managing contractor. They were actually contracted to DFAT, but they sat with the managing contractor, right? This team, this is where the, the, they had strong technical expertise as well as political expertise. Um, and were, this was also the team that did mu much of the engagement with government and with other key government and political actors, right? Um, in addition, okay, so here the idea is that the facility management group was able to make links with Secretary Rojas, the, with DILG, and with individual provincial governors, etc. They also hired a team of project advisors that came straight from some of the key departments who also had lots of connections that they could also leverage. One thing I should, I should note, too, is that um, you can't see it down here, unfortunately, but a key new area of the project was to pick up a reform agenda, which was basically the idea here was if there was a, a proposal uh, that the project really developed in consultation with local actors, which was designed to try to get um, regularized funding transfers from the national government to the provincial government, which would help both inject more money into provincial roads maintenance um, and do it on a much more regular basis, but importantly, using a technical innovation, which is basically taking provincial roads and making them um, assets on a provincial government balance sheet, right? This is a very technical solution. But the, so the, um, but the project was actually developed, the idea was developed bet between the political and the technical specialists figuring out who it could align with and whose interests they could basically bring on board. Now, interestingly, one of their initial recognitions was that Secretary Rojas was not going to be interested in this project, in that, in that reform at all. 
The secretary was interested in a national roads project because he's, he's actually running for president right now. He wanted a flagship project, which he could basically, ha you know, he could claim. This was actually competing with that. So they had to actually find other, other allies within government. So they turned to a particular governor, um, Governor Chateau, who is the head of, the, of, the, uh, of a group of governors and provincial governments. Um, he brought a number of his colleagues along with them to support this reform. They also got the Department of Budget and Management, a very, very powerful department in the Philippines, as well as the Commission on Audit for different technical reasons and as well as political reasons, to also support the reform. So the project had the ability to figure out who was going to be on board, who they could actually draw into the project to support it, which led to all kinds of pressure to pass the reform. And in just two months ago, the, the reform measure was passed. Um, and this is going to have a huge impact um, on both the scale of funding as uh, to provincial roads, as well as how they're managed and give the provincial governments a lot more control over how this is done. So I'm going to skip to the end here. Okay, so that's just one example of, of trying to approach a problem which a large project typically deals with, but doing it in a way which, which goes beyond, goes, you know, goes outside of sort of normal practice. Just quickly, there's a number of, uh, of broad lessons that we can sort of bring from different projects that are trying to work in this way. Quietly get informed. I mean, I think we've talked about that quite a bit before. Question conventional sector, uh, sector conventional wisdom. Um, I think this is an important one that we're seeing. Best practice is, is not necessarily what we want to be doing. This was a case, a very clear case, of sort of a second best technical solution uh, that, uh, that actually was politically feasible. Um, and then creating greater flexibility in implementation. There's a lot of lessons coming out of these two cases about how the project teams try to create more room for maneuver um, for their teams um, on the ground. Um, and there's some, some good lessons coming from that. Um, and then finding new government counterparts, we talked about that at length. So I would argue that there are a lot of very early stage emerging lessons about how large projects can work in different ways. They often don't necessarily look directly political. In many cases, they actually look just like good management. Um, but there's, there's, there's a lot of elements within it, which I think will help us figure out how we can make our programs more flexible, more responsive to local context, and more politically smart. Thank you. Okay, um, it seems to me we've got one minute to lunch. Now, what would normally happen here is I would try and run through 15 minutes worth of slides in five minutes, speaking really fast. Um, or you would have no questions. So you, there would be no time for questions, which God knows. All I'm going to say is this, you can read the book, um, which is all about how does the, the politics and power behind the results agenda 
Um, you, the UK Independent Aid Commission has now written a report, came out in June 2015, which basically argues that Diffid's results framework conveys the scale of activity, um, but arguably sends the inaccurate message to both implementing country partners that Diffid cares more about maximising outputs and benefiting numbers than achieving transformational change. So the big push won in the end. Um, this is the book. That's what it's about. Um, the important thing here is that we were trying to unpack the results agenda. Um, payment by results in UK schools started in 1867. One of the reasons the National Union of Teachers started was to confront that policy, and they succeeded, and it was abolished in 1897. There is nothing new in the world. <laughs> That's very interesting, don't you think? <laughs> and then we've seen how that has returned with the new public management agenda, the results, etc. So there's a deep history of this. The big push forward wanted to uncover how this was playing out, particularly in NGOs, but not just in NGOs. So we did some work, we had a website, we had a conference, we did some crowdsourcing, etc. Um, and what we really wanted to look for is... is the question of power within organisations as well as without. And so we were looking at Clegg's work on power in organisations. I think one of the things that um, is important here is this whole subject of how people who are subjects of power get complicit in the process. And I think that anybody who has been a squeezed middle manager in an NGO or a bilateral agency knows what that feels like. Um, and I love three. Staff say obedience for a ceaseless round of activities with little time for reflection. Does that ring any bells? Um, so, anyhow, the view, the view is, is that understanding politics and power isn't about just about out there. It's about in your organisation. It's about how you comport yourself. That was drawn at a, a workshop on the different approaches to monitoring and evaluation uh, that one might take by a, a senior bureaucrat. Um, and that's how they were feeling about things. Bismarck once said, apparently, that laws um, are like sausages. Uh, you don't want to see how they are made. I worked for Oxfam for 25, well, 20 years. And I can tell you some of our numbers were a little bit rubbery. You really didn't want to see how they were made. And yet, that was how we communicated what we were achieved. That's how we were asked to communicate. So there's a real issue there. But what is also true is what we found during the process. So theory of change. God, we've got to talk about theories of change. So for some organisations, they found the use of theories of change, etc., very useful. This is, there's a chapter in the book on Hevos's experience on theory of change. It's very insightful. Um, and so developing a theory of change has been part of their ongoing journey to better understand what we do, question assumptions, deepen learning and understand our own power in a reflexive way. For others, an instrument of torture. <laughs> so there's nothing about the tool, theory of change, that's necessarily very interesting here. What is interesting is how the power and politics around that tool, who is using it and how, they, how that works. Now, don't be scared about this slide because I'm not going to dwell on it. But at the top are different ways of viewing the world. The world is predictable, objectives can be set, and staff held to account to them. The course of events is complex and cannot be controlled, therefore the donors and partners are in an open system, or 
the financial power empowering less privileged to hold the powerful to account. Now, if you start to tease out those worldviews, and you can then start to map different tools, different methods that are more likely to give you insight depending on that view of the world. Now, I'm not saying that those are then played out in that sense in your organisation or anywhere else, because the power and politics that, we've, that I've talked about actually still plays. You can still have empowerment evaluation that is massively disempowering. And you could probably have results-based approaches that are quite participatory. So there's nothing necessary about these. But I think the important thing is, and you can just see this line here, a lot of the accountability framing that we see is a principal client uh, uh, framing of accountability. It's through contracts, through milestones, etc., etc. But there are other ways of thinking about accountability. There's relational and peer accountability that comes through social relations. And there is political accountability where we kick out those people we don't like, irrespective of the results they've achieved. We just don't like them. And so voice and exit, as... Uh, as we know, is important. And that can be part of thinking about results and monitoring evaluation if we really want it to be. So the themes that emerged from this piece of work was really that position and perspective are particularly important. Monitoring evaluation teams love the results agenda. wonder why. They've got lots more staff. They've got lots more money. They've got lots more power in the organisation. Senior managers like the results agenda. They're getting aggregated Sausage numbers. And there's a dynamic of pressure and response as, as, as those pressures get put on organisation. How they respond becomes particularly important. Some bend to the will of, of the results agenda in uh, an uncritical way, not least because, particularly I think in international NGOs, they have started to recruit a cadre of managers who actually believe this stuff. It's not about the donors making them do that. It's actually their own managers. The next thing we found is that there's a really important issue here about what makes for practices that support more transformational work. And there's some obvious things here. Actually, feasibility is really quite important. You can think that social network analysis and structured topic modelling might be a really interesting way of going about monitoring evaluation. But if none of your staff understand what it means or how to do it, it's not going to be very helpful. Timely information is important. And therefore, there's a question about how non-trivial and meaningful information is gathered. Relevant rigour. Now, the rigour debate is often framed as whether we can come up with a counterfactual that really strengthens and builds an evidence base. That's important. But what about the rigour on who is framing the agenda? The rigour on who is involved in setting the terms of reference? The rigour about how the voice of those who are less powerful are uh, informing judgments that are made? Those are also issues of rigour, and the Better Evaluation works website is very good on extending our understanding of what rigour is about. So, seven strategies that people seem to be adopting to... We heard about um, rules of the game. We've heard about the games within the rules. This is about playing the game to change the rules. Um, is that actually what people said, once they got over a day of moaning about the results agenda uh, at the conference, the second day was actually about what people were doing. And the agency they had when they stood up, and when they said, no, we're not doing that, we're doing this. And so people do have agency to actually propose alternatives. And there's more space 
often than they think. Secondly, understanding the dynamic political context and using values. Christian aid in, in Britain, when they were pushed into a corner about coming up with a value for money strategy, used their values as the basis for coming up for a value for money strategy, rather than a set of values that were alien to them. The book also um, describes the kind of tragic story of, that Ola Abu Alagreb writes about, who is perhaps the star, note, star speaker, who, who runs a disabled women's organisation in, in Palestine, who basically said at the end of the day, the project that was theirs was no longer theirs by the time they had gone through the negotiation with their donors. They had lost control of their project. So and identifying work with what is positive about the agenda, I think uh, Christian Aid is a very good example of that. Um, they used uh, their values to actually frame things in their way. Facilitate frontline staff to speak for themselves. One of the Dutch NGOs involved is working with a number of partners on HIV. And the, the, oh, did I say Dutch? No, uh, a European donor. <laughs> um, and the Dutch NGOs brought those partners to The Hague to have a discussion, and they invited the, the, the minister. The partners had been really angry about the imposition of aggregate indicators on their work um, that had come out of the design process, and they weren't, weren't happy with it. The minister has actually invited the meeting, and they told him the damage that was doing to their programmes, how it, helped, it, it led them to fail to adapt to context, etc., etc. The minister said, that's really stupid, isn't it? You had, yeah. Um, and he changed the design of the programme. Now, collapsing that hierarchy of power so that those that on the front line could speak to themselves, to those who had the power to change things, was massively important. Those squeezed people in the middle either couldn't or wouldn't do that. So I think there's a, a really interesting uh, question there. Advocating for collective action and resistance, and, I mean, we found very few examples of this. So there's a real question amongst, I think, international NGOs in particular. When do they stand up? together to push back? Under what conditions? What would it take for them to do that? And finally, I think there's a lot of uh, option, opportunities to take advantage of emerging opportunities and flux. When DFID and uh, Ozade at the time came up with, you know, value for money is really important, actually, not many people knew what that meant. And there was an op opportunity for a collective group to propose what that should look like. And I don't think the sector sees that opportunity. And I think that when you look at the feminist literature on, on uh, monitoring evaluation, and that I would signal the work of Srilatha Bhattiwala at AWID, and she's written three great papers, 13 great lessons for, for, for women's organisations and 12 lessons for donors on the feminist critique of M&E. Um, but again, there is a lot of space in taking a power approach, a gendered approach. Maybe this is real innovation, um, and maybe there is an opportunity to do something about it. Thank you.
just going to make an executive decision and take this to one o'clock, if that's okay with everyone. So we've got uh, 20 minutes for some questions. We'll take the questions in bunches of three. If you can say who you are, where you're from, and who you're directing your question to, uh, that would be fantastic. Okay, so we've got one, two, three. And all in. I'll get you. Okay, so one, two, three, and then I'll get you the next batch. Okay, so please. Um, I'm Vinny Nagraj, I'm the Chief Economist of the New Zealand Aid Programme based in Wellington. Um, two quick questions, one for Lisa and David. Um, both, there was one sort of common thread in both of your messages, which was the importance of in-house political economy. You know, that it, it meets, political economy analysis meets the needs test of something that you want to do in-house rather than getting external consultants to do. Um, I guess I wanted to challenge that and, and test, you know, your views on that a bit, a bit more, and, and particularly maybe thinking about the Pacific in context in my own experiences. When I get asked to help with a PA, my immediate response is I don't trust myself or anybody in my organisation to actually understand and unpick many of the sort of building blocks that the two of you have put out there. So I guess the question is, you know, why why do you place such an emphasis on that internal in-house, um, um, you know, sort of objective of, of doing these? I can see one element of it, which is a sort of the quick, it's, it's a quick and easy way for people to have a continuous improvement tool. Um, but on the other hand, aren't the risks quite large, you know, to actually getting it wrong if you're, if you're misunderstanding the drivers and incentives? And I can think of the Solomon Islands, for example, when, you know, there are many com complexities in, in how, you know, you interpret those, those drivers. So it's so one question. And the second question was to Tom. Um, so your... Your metric of success was a change in, in the approach, but it also looked really complicated. Um, you know, I guess the question for me is, could you have thought of a, a simpler solution of maybe changing the way you use the management contractor um, to do all of those things? Why did you have to have them as sort of separate building blocks sitting on top of the management contractor um, to basically undertake all of those functions? I'm done. Yeah. Excellent. Great. Gillian. I'm Gillian Fletcher. I work at the Institute for Human Security and Social Change. Chris is my boss, but I'd just like to say that does not affect this question because <laughs> um, I'm also a DLP researcher. What, what really struck me was the difference between the language in, Chris, your presentation and the other three presentations. And there's some terms that I wrote down. One was you were saying about being aware of your own worldview, position and perspectives. Um, making sure that there's autonomy and voice of the less powerful, paying attention to values, and the last, collapsing hierarchies of power. And I'd be very interested to know how the other three presenters see that, if they see that fitting with their work, because I, I saw an absence of that in those three presentations. Cool. Nolene. I really enjoyed this session, thank you, for many reasons, and I'll think about it a bit more later. But for me, one of the things in terms of, you know, this idea of reviving political economy analysis is I come from a group called Development Alternatives of Women for a New Era, or DAWN, that's been around for 30 years using feminist political analysis, and no one takes up um, the analysis, and it's not seen. It's there in many, many movements. It's in a lot of gender um, spaces, in a lot of feminist spaces, but I would say the risk actually when I look at this is, is if you don't get those from inside doing this analysis. Um, you know, the risk for me that I've seen is huge when you get external people doing analysis. So um, I would say that I think this is absolutely a timely session. Um, I'm going to take a lot away from it and think through. But I just wanted you to, to kind of maybe 
maybe articulate a little bit more about why there's a lot of interest right now that I hear in political economy analysis. I mean, I, I, looking at someone who works very much on um, local work in Fiji, but also trying to feed into the Paris processes and the SDG processes and financing for development, the geopolitics at play and the amount of pushback and the amount of play between and within different political groupings, the G77, the, the, you know, the BRICS countries, but then how that overlaps with PSIDs and how that overlaps with Australia and New Zealand. To me, if we don't do this work, that's exactly why we see such a difference between I, I have less trust in, in some of the official mainstream analysis that I, than those that I hear from, um, from maybe voices that aren't taken as seriously as perhaps they should be. Thanks. Thank you. How do you want to tackle this? Lisa, you up first? Sure. And um, then we'll go in the order of the... Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, on the first question, why, why um, not outsourcing? I mean, I think I'd say we probably all agree that some elements can be outsourced. Um, you know, David, I think, sort of mentioned that you can have, you know, some elements that where you actually just need a piece of analysis digging into something that, that gives information to your team. But I think the danger is, for me, if you outsource it, it becomes disconnected from the rest of the program. So it's then something that, you know, an external consultant does for your team, but your team themselves haven't then had to work through the process and think about these things themselves. And I guess, I mean, I take your point that, you know, it's not necessarily that everybody has all of the skills to undertake an entire political economy analysis alone, but hopefully within your team you have enough expertise that when they come together they're able to do that. And if not, there's a couple of roles people talk about. So, you know, there's this role of the, the critical friend or the um, interested, disinterested, yeah. I can't remember quite how. Mm. Anyway, somebody who's outside who hasn't, who is interested in the topic but disinterested in it, they're not invested in the program. Um, and so that you can have these people come in who essentially bring another perspective, can challenge the team, particularly help to get away from kind of group think, um, but still then allow the team to, to own the process, I guess. Um, on Gillian's question, nothing I disagree with. I think this, for me, all comes back to whose problem we're talking about um, and that process of thinking about, um, you know, often when, we, when donor programs are set up, they're thinking about government counterparts and that's not necessarily... That's not the who that we're necessarily interested in. So I think a lot of those issues come out when you start to tease that apart. Um, and then on the final question, why the interest in PEA right now? Um, I think there's a sense in which there's a little bit of, you know, it, that, the, the thing that Tom talked about, this sort of almost revolution, that there was a lot of momentum around it. And I mean, there's still quite a lot of investment in it. There's also people who are getting, um, I think, a bit frustrated with you know, what they see as the lack of answers that PEA is providing. So I think there's probably a moment to to sort of highlight its value and be realistic about what it's going to achieve. Um, I'll piggyback on um, what you just said, so I agree with all of it. Um, but in, in terms of the why, Vinny, uh, I, think, I think a lot of it comes back to this, um, that, that the world is always changing, right? It's in flux and, and it's just not convenient or feasible or possible to get uh, constant external um, analysis. And um, I think Lisa... Um, uh, made the case of critical friends and etc. Well, in the paper we talk about the importance of triangulation. Um, there's a couple of examples I can think of. One is the Pacific Leadership Program, their R&R process, which um, Chris has written a paper on, and it's a collective internal reflection and challenge session. The other one is a recent uh, Asia Foundation paper by Deborah Ladner um, on strategy testing, which is kind of similar as well. But again, it's a it's a semi-formalized process where people challenge each other's assumptions and theory of change. 
Um, Gillian, yeah, uh, that's a good observation, and uh, I would agree with you. I think TWP, thinking working politically, or PEA, has been ignorant and remiss to not talk more about normative issues, positionality, and the role of donors in this. There are conversations, as you know, happening around that. Um, and just to uh, flag up a paper that uh, de Sandy recently has written on the donor's dilemma, which kind of forces us to think about those normative issues. Um, and again, to the question on gender political analysis, I think this is another thing that has been missed, and there's um, some good blogs recently around the Bangkok meeting um, looking at the relationship that PEA forgot and gender and how a gendered approach to power, etc., and identity actually brings a lot to PEA that we should uh, take more seriously. Excellent. John? Um, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay, down there. I would, uh, sorry. Just... Uh, on the, on the question about the PEA and, and why it should be outsourced, I, I just echo this, but also I'm involved in one, uh, one, uh, one of our country programs who's really keen to do PEA. We decided to do it entirely differently. Um, we're not really focusing on any outputs. The whole point of the process is to bring the staff, both local staff as well as international staff, along a process of understanding and improving their, their awareness of local politics around a certain, a certain sectors. That is, I think, the best we can achieve, right? Generating a report that maybe two or three people will read and, and other people will, I just don't think that actually does anything valuable. Um, so I think that's actually, I, I would agree with Lisa and, and, and David. Um, on the FMG, um, look, I, we're not, I, I wasn't saying that there's any, any structural solution that makes sense. I more was trying to describe that we we came up with a new way of structuring management. You're absolutely right. That could be in the contractor. That could be in defect, right? Um, so there's lots of different. In fact, writing this paper, one thing that's been clear, I've been looking for structural sort of best practices I can hang on to, right? Say, oh, you should always do this. They're, they're, they don't exist. Um, so there's no clear examples for that. Um, on the YPEA now, um, that's, that's a great question, a big question. One thing I would just add to what's been said already, I think actually a lot of this has come from deep, uh, um, people being deeply troubled by the lack of impact, particularly in fragile states, um, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also in other areas too. So a recognition that what we're doing has not worked um, in some cases has, has, has spectacularly failed uh, in some areas, and trying to understand why it almost always leads us to politics, right? Um, so I think that that's partly driven uh, a lot of the thinking around it. Um, but in addition, more recently, in middle-income countries, there's been an acknowledgement that the things that are, that are really trapping those countries from moving, moving beyond uh, their current middle-income trap problems those are political too, right? So there's this sort of mountain of evidence that's building up, which is pushing us to uh, sort of confront that problem. Chris? Oh. Any, any further? Okay, some more questions. So one, two, three. Hmm. Sorry. And that might be it unless you're going to skip lunch. <laughs> Sorry, um, and they're always available to have a chat, very nice people, engaged, um, so their emails are readily available, and they're wanting the dialogue. So, question, please. Yeah, 
so thank you uh, for uh, the, the great presentations. Um, I'm not sure whether this forum can answer my question. I'll ask it anyway. Um, and it probably also falls from on what uh, you just mentioned on Iraq interventions in Iraq and then Afghanistan. So um, my area of research has been implementation of water sector reforms in Lebanon. And uh, so economy by all means, very, very important. But uh, I was just thinking, I mean, we, we are mentioning here thinking and working politically, but um, to what extent can politics also be development aware at least not working in development but at least think about development in their politics and I'm particularly uh, referring here to the um, problematic uh, issues of sectarian power sharing that um, I found as being at the basis of all most development related problems in that area uh, particularly from uh, rent seeking uh, patronage perspective, um, and when, when the international community, for example, proposes for Iraq a, a sectarian power, share, power sharing regime, for example, and I think this is the regime that they have in mind for Syria to mm. currently, mm. so it's another, so to what extent can, there, uh, can we have a feedback, do you reckon, into the political, the foreign politics arena, I guess. Very well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, my name is Christoph, and I have worked for a while in, like, say, the project and program management, so the squeeze middle, as you um, described it, and development cooperation. So a lot of uh, what you presented really resonates with me. Um, what I always find challenging uh, when I hear like so many good ideas is how do we really get that into the tools? And when I arrive in a donor, I get like first of all the project management cycle guidance book on the table. And there's all kinds of tools and everything in there. So how can we, how can you, for instance, your ideas that you presented, how can it be integrated in a way that we do not add another layer? Because it's always, everyone always wants to add something. And you know, in a time constraint management, um, it's like, how can we integrate it? That's always um, a challenge. On the politically smart one, um, how of the time I spend more with my politics of my own government mm. than the, of the recipient government. Mm. Um, how do you integrate it? It was completely lacking. Um, it's even more so now that aid programs are getting more into foreign ministries. Um, I see this all the time that partners already prescribed uh, certain intervention strategies are already prescribed even before we go to the PA. Um, how can we, where is that in the future? And yeah, and the MOE very much um, resonates with me as well. I think we're getting to a point where <clears throat> creating maybe our own world through these indicators on the tables that sometimes has very little to do with the real world. And this is a bit um, like we're creating a distance um, that um, may be dangerous for the whole planning like in um, adequate implementation cycle. Thank you. Some interesting comments. Mm -hmm. Alina? I was wondering if you can reflect a little bit on the politics of evidence and what, if there has been a shift on what counts as evidence. And I'm thinking, you know, if the positivists are still sort of the norm and want to have easily quantifiable and countable bits of evidence um, is the norm, how, how does that fit with political economy analysis and what you 
right to the crux of the matter. Okay, how would you like to uh, address that? You, Chris, you're first. Well, maybe I'll start with the last first and work mm-hmm. What was really interesting in the conversation is clearly, given the conference was held in Europe, we had donor staff from a number of agencies as well as NGOs. It was clearly in some places, and certainly in Britain, the emphasis on evidence was emerging, if you like. And those people working on the evidence agenda in VIFID almost saw their work as actually um, countering the results work that was producing rubbish numbers. Okay, so that, so that was an internal struggle. Whereas in the rest of Europe, it was only results, and they were really interested in how they could start on an evidence journey that would therefore downplay the, the uh, emphasis on sausage numbers. And so there was a different struggle going on in different places. But I think that DFID's work and the small, the study that Elliot Stern has done for them on small N um, studies is very, very useful in expanding our understanding of evidence into the qualitative domain, into small N studies, into less qualitative <laughs> spaces. And I don't think we have seized that opportunity as much as we could. So I think, I think it's a really important question. Um, and so I think there's more space than there was maybe two or three years ago. But we need to keep, I think, expanding. Okay. Two very quick points to Christoph's question about um, uh, integrating without adding a layer. I completely agree with that. And I think the approach we've been taking is to try and actually build individual relationships and, and persuade people that it might actually be useful to them rather than just something they have to do in a mandatory sense. But also doing internal political analysis, crucial. I joke that I've used this on my head of department and to try and figure out what the hell he's trying to do with something. So there's absolutely no reason why you can't do that. Uh, the final point, I've been asked to flag up uh, by Heather Marquette, who's been working very hard on a website that brings together a lot of resources about around thinking and working politically. And the website is twpcommunity, or one word, dot org. So go there, and there'll be lots of good material that's well worth looking at. I've done it for a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's a hashtag, twpcommunity, that you can keep an eye on. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Steve. Uh, just very briefly, in response to Christoph, I mean, yeah, this is a, a difficult question, and um, unfortunately one that I guess researchers aren't totally pushed to answer, which means that we often skirt around it. Um, I mean, for me, it's about trying to make this a resource available that's not, you know, there's no one way to do political economy analysis, right? I think this is the other problem with a lot of the tools and the frameworks. People should use processes that are helpful to them in addressing the problems that they come up with. So, I mean, the best, I think, you know, we can do is provide resources that are accessible, that are not too long, not too jargon-heavy, etc. Um, you know, the, the paper I'm writing has all these annexes at the end that are the templates that you can use to actually do this if you want to. But I don't think it's the kind of thing that should ever become something that everybody has to do, because I think that's probably what it becomes like. Tom. I may pass and actually just follow up individually, yeah, okay. just since everybody's ready to go. Okay, yeah, we can hear the lunch uh, noise already happening. Uh, I'd like to ask you to help us thank the presenters for today. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. 
At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.